This is mosaic. Mosaic. This is mosaic. Mosaic. This is Mosaic. I'm Derek Clements. One week from today, Americans will have the opportunity to vote in the midterm elections. I don't want to assume or cater to just an American audience with this podcast. But if you are an American citizen, please vote. If you live in a place with early voting, vote early. Voting day is Tuesday, November 6th. If Democrats gain a majority in the House and or the Senate, it would, for the first time in Trump's presidency, provide a meaningful check on his power. Donald Trump has had too much power, and he's not worthy of it. I was stunned when he was elected president. To me, November 2016 was a seismic cultural moment, a sudden jolt, something that would rewrite the cultural narrative in the country. The only thing like it in my lifetime that I could remember was 9-11. Part of why it was so shocking, I have now come to understand, was my own position in the culture. As a white, liberal-leaning man, my paradigm shattered on election day. But many people have known all along that Trump's brazen racism, cruelty, and greed were not anomalies in the American system, but a deeply embedded part of it. I was instructed on this point just a few days after the election, watching Saturday Night Live. The lesson came from Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. You never know, guys. Alaska's still out there. We're now calling Alaska for Donald Trump. Oh my God. I think America is racist. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I remember my great grandfather told me something like that. But you know, he was like a slave or something. <laughs> now come on, guys. Get some rest. You got a big day of moping and writing on Facebook tomorrow. God, this is the most shameful thing America has ever done. <laughs> Today, I'm reflecting on two years of President Donald Trump. I'm thinking about what I have come to learn about my country in these two years. I think that reflecting on events, checking in with our thoughts and beliefs over time, reevaluating, these are important things to do. So on today's episode of Mosaic, I'm going to take us back to that week in November 2016 and play an audio essay that I created the day after the election. You'll hear in my tone of voice and in my words how I was feeling that morning and what I was thinking about. I know for many, reliving November 2016 is not a pleasant experience. So if you have to hit stop before the rest of this episode plays, let me just repeat, please vote next week. After I play this piece, when we come back to the present in 2018, I'm going to reflect on what I think I got wrong back then, the day after the election, November 2016. On Tuesday night, I turned on Stephen Colbert's live Showtime special. Live election night, democracy's series finale. My nerves were in knots. 
I'd felt happy earlier that day, even tweeting that it felt like a national holiday. That morning, I had gotten on my bike and headed to a high school near my house, stood in a short line, and voted for the first female president of the United States. She was my favorite candidate on the ballot, and was also the favorite to win the whole thing. But by the time Colbert's live show started, her chances had gone down considerably, as Trump picked up more and more states, narrowly. Amazing. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, there, thank you. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. You don't need to stand for me. You don't need to chant my name. America doesn't have dictators yet. A group of friends and I were decorating sugar cookies shaped like vaginas. This was supposed to be a big night for American women. Finally, the United States would join the ranks of countries that had been led by a woman. But as more and more returns came in, we were nervous. Colbert's show started strong, with a long animated segment that made a pretty strong argument that Trump may have been humiliated into running for office, being a small-handed little boy that craved praise from his father. I'm not a loser. You're a loser. And there's nothing worse in this world than a loser! Donald, how was the baseball game? It was the best! Huge! I met lots of friends and they were all... Did you best. win? Well, no, but it was Then you're fun. a loser! What? A big loser! But Daddy, the glove you gave me was too big! It fits me fine! It fits all winners fine! Daddy, stop! Daddy will never love you! It felt like a bomb to laugh at him. At this man who, during his campaign, had mocked the disabled, had called for a ban on Muslims, had vilified Mexican immigrants, and stoked racism in various forms, had given a voice to white nationalism, even winning the support of the KKK, a man who had applied principles of corporate branding to belittle his opponents with nicknames. Lion Ted, Crazy Bernie, Crooked Hillary. Do, are those, do you have a team of people at work? Or do you no, brainstorm, no. or is it just you come up with no, it and team, that's it? The team is right the there. The team is right there. All of which stuck. But I have come up with Crooked Hillary, and you know what's going on. She's very crooked. They had a, they had a bad, bad report come out today, and it's a rough report. That is a sad report who had, after a video surfaced that showed him bragging about touching women's genitals without their permission, showed no signs of genuine contrition and instead pointed the finger of blame at his opponent's husband, even bringing some of Bill Clinton's accusers to the second presidential debate as a means of intimidation and dominance, which was something Saturday Night Live satirized in the next show. Four of those women are here tonight, four of them. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, who's here? Mistresses? Bill, how could you? How will I go on with the debate? No, I'll never be able to remember my facts and figures now. Oh, Donald, no! Get real, I'm made of steel, this is nothing. Hi, girls. It felt good to laugh at him and relish in the small person he was inside because his whole persona was the opposite of that. He showed no shred of humility. Donald Trump scared me earlier this year because he was a wild card, unpredictable, someone who was making a mockery of the political process at every turn. 
But I stopped being scared when I identified a single simple character trait that seemed to encompass everything he had done and said up to that point. He cares about himself and his image more than absolutely anything else. That trait gives logical sense to every one of his actions throughout the campaign. It's why he made fun of people in groups. It's why he was so friendly to Vladimir Putin. Well, he does have an 82% approval rating, according to the different pollsters, who, by the way, some of them are based right here. Look. He's also look. a guy who annexed Crimea, invaded Ukraine, supports Assad in Syria, supports Iran, is trying to undermine our influence in key regions of the world, and according to our intelligence community, probably is the main suspect for the hacking of the DNC computers. Well, nobody basically. knows that for a fact, but do you want me to start naming some of the things that President Obama does But do you want to be time? complimented by that former KGB officer? Well, I think when he calls me brilliant, I'll take the compliment, okay? If he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. It's why he resisted condemning the support of David Duke. Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, just so you understand, I don't know anything about David Duke, okay? I don't know anything about what you're even talking about with uh, white supremacy or white supremacists. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Did, did he endorse me or what's going on? Because, you know, I know nothing about David Duke. I know nothing about white supremacists. And so you're asking me a question that I'm supposed to be talking about people that I know nothing about. It's why he lashed out at Saturday Night Live on Twitter for satirizing him. It's why he claimed that sexual assault is okay for him because when you're a star, you can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the. You can get away with anything. <laughs> I can do anything. This character trait, this cartoonishly large ego that shows no capacity for self reflection or humility, didn't make me less scared that he would become the president of the United States. But it made me less scared in general. Because, first of all, I didn't see how someone guided by that trait could gain ultimate power in the United States. And anyway, at least he was comprehensible now. Predictable. And it proved true the rest of his campaign. Everything he did could be explained by that one trait. And that one trait made him so fun to laugh at. <laughs> Look what they did to you, Donald. It's okay, Trump. Calm down. They probably already forgot about the jokes. It's nothing. Nothing. Let's just see what's on the telly. Donald Trump, a champion of the birther movement, harshly rebuked and humiliated by the leader of the free world tonight at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yes, Wolf, it was very clear who was the president of the United States and who was the reality TV buffoon. <laughs> yeah! Sad. You were right. I, I am a loser. A big, big loser. Something inside me, though, didn't like how much I enjoyed laughing at him. I had similar reservations with myself when, at one point during the campaign, I drank up a bottle of self-righteousness when it seemed my people, the Mormons, were the one group of religious folks who weren't going to roll over and accept Trump. In December, the church denounced Trump's call to ban Muslims. 
It felt good that Utah might go for a third party, or even for Clinton, and that we Mormons could somehow see something other religious groups couldn't. I was proud of Mormons. But in the same feeling, there was a tinge of doubt. Really? Did I think my group was better, smarter than the rest? That made me uneasy. And I felt even more uneasy by something else. Something I planned to do after Trump lost. I explained it to my fellow fallopian tube cookie painters. I was going to send a mean tweet to Donald Trump on November 9th. But then again, no, I didn't want to add to the larger mess of meanness that Trump had peddled and normalized during his whole campaign. So I decided I wouldn't send a public tweet. But I would send a letter. I would handwrite a letter to Mr. Donald J. Trump that simply said, Dear Mr. Trump, Hillary Clinton was one of the most unliked candidates in all of history, and she still beat you because you are a loser. You are such a loser, you couldn't even beat one of the most unliked candidates in history. You are even more unliked than she is, because you are a loser. Sincerely, Derek. I imagined him reading it, maybe crying, the bully in every movie who finally got a taste of his own medicine, who lashed out because he had thin skin that even a nobody like me could puncture. It felt good to imagine that. But in the back of my mind, I also felt gross for wanting to do that. There's a scripture about charity, love, about how it never fails, ever, even when people are gross and bullies. It talks about how charity is kind and doesn't envy and doesn't puff itself up. And it says that charity delighteth not in iniquity, which seemed like a non sequitur my whole life. What does delighting in iniquity have to do with charity? Until I was a 19-year-old missionary, and I hated being with my companion, who I was with every single day for a stretch of several weeks. I hated how he talked and acted and how he was rude to people all the time. And then I started to actually kind of like when he was rude to people, because every time he did something wrong, I got a little thrill of superiority over him. I was delighting in iniquity, his iniquity, without even noticing my own. That in my loneliness and frustration, I was the one without charity. I think Stephen Colbert who calls himself an unironic Catholic, has read and internalized some of the same scriptures as I have. By the end of his Showtime special, Trump's victory was even more likely than it had been at the beginning of it, and Stephen Colbert looked how I felt. He seemed incredulous and despondent that Trump was winning. And at the end of the episode, he gave a nervous, heartfelt speech that seemed to me like a riff on charity doesn't delight in iniquity. By every metric, I mean, we are more divided than ever as a nation. Um, do we still, do we have this graphic from earlier before? According to the Pew Research Center, uh, more than four in 10 voters say the other party's policies are so misguided they pose a threat to the nation. But you know what? Everybody feels that way. And not only that, more than half of Democrats say the Republican Party makes them afraid. Well, 49% of, do I have this right? Is it 49% of Republicans say 
The same thing about the Democratic Party. So both sides are terrified of the other side. And I think that's why the voting booth has a curtain, so you have some place to hide after the election's over. So how did our politics get so poisonous? I think it's because we overdosed, especially this year. We drank too much of the poison. You take a little bit of it so you can hate the other side. And it tastes kind of good. And you like how it feels. And there's a gentle high to the condemnation, right? And you know you're right, right? Mm. You know you're right. I've had that poison. And I'm very sorry that Trump won because I think he doesn't have the interests of the country first. I think he's had the poison too. And I think his success has depended in a significant way in bottling the poison and selling it for political profit. But I'm not sorry that I can't send that letter. I hope I wouldn't have sent the letter if he had lost, but I think I might have. Or at least that the only thing that would have kept me from sending it was my own self-interest, not charity. Today, humbled, I am more committed to removing that poison from my own system and not indulging in it next time it looks so tasty and refreshing, no matter how parched I feel. Because delighting in the iniquity of others doesn't do any good, and it makes you miss your own failings. Case in point, Utah voted for Trump, and Mormons voted for him more than almost any other religious group in the country, according to exit polls. A former female leader of the church's largest women's organization even gave a prayer at a Mike Pence rally in the weeks before the campaign. Utah Republicans heeded the call to come home. I was so disappointed. And I'm going to remember that next time. I think my group is better than another. To be clear, I haven't seen anything yet from Trump that makes me think he has changed the single character trait that guides him. His acceptance speech is commendable only by the incredible low bar we always have for him. He didn't declare himself king or actively repeat the scary things he said he would do during his campaign. But he didn't apologize for those things. And I don't expect him to, ever, about anything. I want to give you the opportunity. Is there anybody you'd like to apologize to right now yourself? Uh, no. No? <laughs> no Maybe the audience. No one to apologize at all. Okay. No, no, let's no apologies. So I'm going to be paying attention in the next four years, hoping for his success as president, ready to help how I can, ready to call him out on mistakes he may make and actively work against anything that would harm people that he may propose. But if I can get the rest of that poison out of my system, my critical eye is also going to be directed at myself. And I'm not going to delight in Trump's mistakes anymore. What we need right now is not another wall. It's to peer over the walls we have created this year and reach across them to find each other. Why do we build a wall? Why 
keep us free. That's why we build a wall. We build a wall to keep us free. How does the wall keep us free? My children, my children, how does the wall keep us free? How does the wall keep us free? The wall keeps out the enemy. We build a wall to keep us free. Who do we call the enemy? My children, my children. Who do we call the enemy? Who do we call? Okay, we're back in 2018 now. And did you hear that despair in my voice from two years ago? Well, if you felt that too, I'm happy to say there's something super meaningful we all can do about that despair, and that is to vote. Again, if you're American, please vote next Tuesday. Put a check on Donald Trump's power. I have just a couple reassessments of my position that I laid out in that essay from two years ago. The first thing that rings differently in my ear now, two years later, is the bit about Bill Clinton's accusers. So, uh, thank you very much for coming, and these four very courageous women have asked to be here, and it was our honor to help them. And I think they're each going to make just an individual short statement, and then we will have a little meeting, and uh, we'll see you at the debate. Perhaps we'll start with Paul. Well, I'm here to support uh, Mr. Trump because he's going to make America great again. Hey, I think everybody else should vote for him. Okay. Hi, I'm, I'm Winnie DeBroderick, and I'm here to support Donald Trump. I tweeted recently, and Mr. Trump retweeted it, that actions speak louder than words. Mr. Trump may have said some bad words, but Bill Clinton raped me, and Hillary Clinton threatened me. I don't think there's any comparison. I remember that debate. I was on my honeymoon when Trump theatrically used as a human shield four women, Kathleen Willey, Juanita Broderick, Paula Jones, and Kathy Shelton, three of whom had accused Bill Clinton of sexual misconduct, including rape. I remember being horrified at the disgusting use of these women and their stories as a distraction from what should have been a campaign-ending revelation of the Access Hollywood tapes. But while I was disgusted by Trump's behavior at the time, I also didn't put much thought into the women's stories. In that Saturday Night Live clip, Kate McKinnon, as Hillary Clinton, referred to them as mistresses. In 2018, I appreciate now more than I did two years ago that, yes, Trump had no business using those women's stories to his own advantage. No, his opponent's husband's behavior was not relevant to her qualifications as a candidate. And yes, Donald Trump has repeatedly proven himself to be a vulgar misogynist. Credibly accused himself by 22 women of sexual misconduct, including rape. But I still swept away two years ago the stories of the women on that panel. Kathleen Willey alleged that President Bill Clinton sexually assaulted her during his first term. Juanita Broderick alleged that Bill Clinton raped her when he was the attorney general of Arkansas. 
Paula Jones sued Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. I think after the breaking open of Me Too, the time is up for those on the left who supported Bill Clinton back then to reconsider that support. The second thing I'm reconsidering from my essay is more fundamental to the argument I was making. I still stand by the advocation to stop drinking the poison. But I didn't do enough, I think, to distance my argument from a kind of centrist, all-sides-are-right mentality. I didn't intend to forgive Donald Trump of his failings. But I was blinded to the fact that on moral issues, being in the center is sometimes just as bad or even worse than being on the wrong side of the debate. Martin Luther King Jr. warned against white moderates, and I should have done more to avoid slipping into that tendency. It's a privileged tendency to avoid conflict and try to bring all sides together. David Chen is a person whose cultural commentary I very much enjoy following. Um, He sent an email newsletter this week that includes the sentiment that I think is an essential missing ingredient to my original essay. He quotes from a recent article by Tayari Jones for Time magazine. The article's called, There's Nothing Virtuous About Finding Common Ground. Here's the quote. I find myself annoyed by the hand-wringing about how we need to find common ground. People ask, how might we meet in the middle, as though this represents a safe, neutral, and civilized space. This American fetishization of the moral middle is a misguided and dangerous cultural impulse. The middle is a point equidistant from two poles. That's it. There's nothing inherently virtuous about being neither here nor there. Buried in this is a false equivalency of ideas, what you might call the good people on both sides phenomenon. When we revisit our shameful past, ask yourself, rather than chattel slavery, perhaps we could agree on a nice program of indentured servitude. Instead of subjecting Japanese-American citizens to indefinite detention during World War II, what if we had agreed to give them actual sentences and perhaps provided a receipt for them to reclaim their things when they were released? What is halfway between moral and immoral? Tayari Jones concludes her article saying, Compromise is not valuable in its own right, and justice seldom dwells in the middle. There's a lot that needs to be done to heal this country. And that includes voting. So I'll be in the ballot box next Tuesday. And I hope you will too. And I'll be back with you soon here on Mosaic. Thanks for listening. I'm Derek Clements.